0: And we are in the middle of Romans chapter two. We actually began about three or four weeks ago, and we had a week off while I was gone on vacation, but we started <coughs> — excuse me, we started then in chapter two. And uh, today we are uh, down to uh, beginning in about verse 17 and through verse 24 is our passage for today. Uh, But the previous uh, couple lessons, we've covered the first 16 verses of chapter 2. So before we go on to today's verses and today's lesson why don't you look down through those first 16 verses of chapter two uh, and uh, share with us what do you remember some of the things that we talked about particularly last week but even in the lesson before that what are some of the things that stick out to you that we've been talking about lately out of chapter two okay okay he's kind of saying two things there he's he's being inclusive he's he's saying everybody it's for everybody but he's also putting a priority on the jews because of their privileged position uh he puts a priority on them that it goes first to them but then it is also going like you say to everybody so it's all inclusive okay what else? The
1: Jews have the law of the conscience written.
0: Okay, okay. The Jews have uh, the written law, and we're going to talk more about that today. Uh, they have the written law that was given to them at Mount Sinai, what we call the Law of Moses. And the Gentiles, they don't have that. But even though they don't have the law, they have a law. And where is that law? It's written on their hearts, right? It's written on their hearts. So it is. so it is. You know, some commentators kind of draw a little bit of a distinction between conscience and the law and the heart. And I don't know, that seems to me a little bit uh, stretching and I don't see the clear distinction there. Uh, but it, but it is that idea that within every man is some sense or appreciation of what is right and what is wrong. And he says the Gentiles have that. What else did we learn?
1: Talk about the distinction that the deeds would be judged but that was not prescriptive for salvation. Okay. In other words, your deeds were not going to get you into heaven.
0: Okay. Okay. And why is that? Why are our deeds not going to get us into heaven? why not Why? I mean Paul, Paul says here we're going to be judged by our deeds and those that are, those that do evil are you know are going to be judged one way and those that do good are going to receive eternal life he says so isn't he isn't he teaching a justification by works here
1: okay okay okay
0: and we, of course, we'll get to that. But Paul's going to Paul's going to belabor this point here for a while about our true condition. He's going to get to, you know, what is the answer. But he hasn't he hasn't, he hasn't let us get there yet. Okay. What he's trying to communicate to us is that is that if, in fact, we are relying upon the law, we're all up a crick because we just simply don't keep the law. Some people keep it better than others. You know, I've... Heard the example of you know of somebody who's going to swim to Hawaii, you know, from the west coast. So they get in the water. First person gets in the water, and you know he may be a swimmer like me, and he may get a few hundred yards and then he drowns, you know. And then you may have somebody like some of these Olympic swimmers we've been watching, right, the last couple of weeks. And one of those guys may get several miles out in the Pacific Ocean, but they're still going to drown right they're not going to make it to Hawaii okay and that's kind of the point that Paul is making is that some of us may be better than others some of us may be Olympians when it comes to moral behavior and moral contact but it's still not nearly good enough to bridge that gap and that's the point that Paul's making what else We did take a little bit of a detour uh, last week uh, because this subject came up in the passage and, and so we needed to kind of get our bearings a little bit for things we're going to confront later in the book of Romans. And we talked about Paul's use of the word law in Romans. What do you remember we talked about there?
1: several meanings. Okay.
0: Okay. There are several meanings for the word law in Romans and I gave out a handout last week. So if you weren't here last week, there are some more handouts left here uh, of the various ways that Paul uses. Uh, can I have one of those? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, various ways that Paul uses the word law in Romans. And I think I have not Yeah, There are nine of them listed on here. Nine different ways the word law is used in Romans. So when you encounter the word law, as we did in the passage that we were looking at last week, and we will again today, as we encounter the word law, whenever you encounter the word law in Romans, you need to figure out how is Paul using the word. If you always assume that he's talking about the Mosaic law, you're going to misunderstand Romans. If you always think he's talking about the law written on the heart, you're going to misunderstand Romans. So you have to really determine from the context, typically, usually you have to determine from the context, how is the word law being used? And very quickly, just to kind of refresh our memory, what we talked about last week, uh, there is a, he uses the word law as just simply a general term as a reference to law in general or the guideline or the, or the standard of moral right and wrong. Okay. And he uses it in that sense in this passage when he speaks about a law written on the heart. It's just this general guideline or general sense of what is right and wrong that's written on the heart. Uh, he talks about the law. Oftentimes in your translations, the word law is capitalized when it has the the article in front of it. The law. And that's always a reference to the Mosaic Law. There's the law of faith, which we'll talk about when we get there in chapter 3. There's the law of God, which is probably also a reference to the Mosaic Law. There's the law of my mind. Uh, there's the law of righteousness. There's the law of sin, or the law of sin and death. There's the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And there's the law of work. So these are all various ways that Paul uses the word law in Romans, and we'll wrestle with that. Uh, as we go through the book so that was all just by way of review anything else you want to mention from uh, last week well as we as we go through the passage that we were in last week again we were talking about the moralists in a general sense in other words in chapter one we had just kind of a general description of the human race. And uh, it was kind of just a general description of the condition of man. And it was a pretty bleak picture that he painted in Romans chapter 1. And as I mentioned in Romans 1, that there probably are very few people, if any, to whom all the description of Romans chapter 1 applies. But a sufficient amount of the ways that he describes us are... Uh, there in chapter 1 applies to everybody in the human race that we are all in a very, very, very difficult position. Okay, We are all under, he says, the wrath of God. And uh, but, but the problem is that as we read through Romans 1, the tendency for many people and maybe most of us perhaps before we were Christians was to stand back and look at that description in Romans 1 and say, God, I thank you I'm not like them. <laughs> I don't do those kind of things. I I don't approve of those kind of things. When I see other people do those things, I judge them. I consider them to be sinning, and uh, and uh, so I don't think that I fit into that description that you have given in Romans chapter one. And that kind of person is the kind of person I've called the moralist, or Mr. and Mrs. Judge. Okay, they're the person who. In some, in some self-righteous uh, way or in some hip, hypocritical way, look down their noses at those who they think are worse sinners than them and judge them and condemn them for, them, for their, their sin, failing to recognize, as Jesus says, the log in their own eye. Okay, And so this is the moralist. And the moralist says, well, I, I don't approve of those things. I condemn those things. And, and and I try to live a good life and I do a pretty good job of it and so uh, clearly I am not under the wrath of God why would God be angry with me I'm doing the best I can and I'm certainly doing better than my neighbor Okay, and that's the argument that the moralists make and Paul is as we've said he's kind of he's reeling us in here he's thrown out a net and he's pulling this net in Until at the end, he's pulled that net in tight and we realize that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we realize that we are all under the wrath of God. And Paul is pulling that net tighter. And so he starts with a broad brush in chapter 1 and he gets more specific in the beginning of chapter 2 where he talks about the moralists and he begins to pull that net in. and, uh, and, And some of us who are moralists, we begin to squirm a little more because we feel the constriction of that net As Paul says, well, in reality, you do know what's right and what's wrong. And in reality, you do judge others for doing wrong. The problem is you do the same things yourself. Now, the thing about the moralist, and probably, as I say, many of us would have fit into this category. Maybe we still do. Uh, The problem with the moralist is it's pretty hypocritical looking if I... You know, if I'm a thief and I judge somebody that's a thief or if I'm a liar and I judge somebody, you know, that, you know, my hypocrisy gets pretty conspicuous there. So what I do is I conceal my sin. I live my life in such a way so that others don't see that I'm really a thief or I'm really a liar or I'm really a hater of my enemies Uh or, uh, or I really, uh, I really am a, a lustful uh, individual, or I really am a covetous. So I don't, I don't display those things as openly as maybe somebody from Romans chapter one would do. I conceal it, thinking, well, maybe if others don't see that in my life, God won't see it either. And Paul's words to the moralist are. Listen, it's not the hearer of the law who is justified before God, but it is the doer of the law. And God knows that even though you put on a facade of being moral and upright, in reality, in your heart, you are as much a sinner as the person of chapter 1. And so you too, the moralist, is under the judgment of God. So we have this whole general category, which is all of mankind, and all of mankind has sinned, and all of mankind is under the wrath of God. And in this general category, we have a subset, and that subset is the moralist. Okay. Now, within the subset of the moralist, we have another subset, and that third subset, or second subset, is the one he's going to address today. Begin to address today, and that's the Jew. Okay. Now. There's a couple things uh, that we need to keep in mind as we uh, as we deal with this passage. Um, and and uh, one of those is we need we need to keep in mind the difference between interpretation of Scripture and application of Scripture. What what is the difference between interpretation and application and why is it important?
1: He one of those H classes. You can call really. He said that Scripture means <laughs> what Scripture means Okay. But application is ongoing every day and do not uh, we should not uh, take our modern and interpret scripture according to him but we do need to take scripture and apply it to our lives in the light of our
0: modern day. okay good good and the way I like to say it is that in that interpretation is finding out what the original intent of Scripture was. You know, we're familiar with this term, original intent from the political sphere, okay? Well, this is what we want to do with Scripture. We want to figure out what did the author or the writer, the speaker, in some cases, if it's it's a speech like a Sermon on the Mount or something like that, what did the author or the writer or the speaker originally mean to communicate? And to do that, we have to understand... Where he's coming from, what you know what, what, what's his con- contextual background, what's his culture, what, what are his uh, theological ideas, what are his concepts? So we need to kind of get into the mind of the original source, the original speaker or writer. And we also need to understand, because presumably every time we communicate, now some people this may not be true, Um, I've known some people who just like to talk to hear themselves talk. But most of us talk because we want to be understood by somebody else. We want them to get our message. And so one of the things we do when we're interpreting Scripture is we not, not only try to understand what the speaker is trying to say, but we try to understand how the first recipients would have understood or comprehended what he says. And until we have determined those things, until we have we have understood the original intent of the passage. We don't understand Scripture. We don't have an interpretation of Scripture. We have somebody's idea of Scripture. We have we may have all kinds of ideas or thoughts about what Scripture is saying. But until we have a real sense of that original intent, we really don't know what the Scripture was saying. Okay. Once we have that, and only after we have that, are we in a place, then, to apply Scripture? So you never want to apply Scripture until you've interpreted Scripture. Okay? Because if you apply Scripture before you've interpreted Scripture, you may be applying, some, uh, applying something that's totally wrong. You have to know first, what did God really intend to communicate in the first place? Once you are up on that platform where you can see the landscape, you know, you know what, what this really means, then you are in a place to say, now here I am in the 21st century in my life. How does that message that was communicated 2,000 or 3,000 years ago, how does that have any bearing on my life? And how should I live my life in view of that? So we look at the original intent and we go, well, this is how God was. And these are the things that God was saying and communicating. We know that he doesn't change. Uh, situations change, cultures change, history changes, everything else changes, but God doesn't change. So so I go back and I look at those things and I say, okay, now if I know that God is this way and this is how he deals with people, and if I know this is the nature of man as God has revealed it, if I know those things, then when I come up to my situation in the 21st century, how do I think that God wants me to act or God wants me to live or God wants me to think in the 21st century, given what I know that he communicated back then. So that's application and that's interpretation. So what we are confronted with here in the book of
1: Romans,
0: (coughs) excuse me, in this part of the book of Romans, is Paul is addressing a very specific particular situation. And the verses we're looking at today, he's talking about the condition of the Jews. So as I read Romans chapter 2, verses 17 and following, it's very easy to read them and go, Well, Paul's talking to the Jews. What's that got to do with me? Well, one of the things we want to do today. Uh, boy, I misread my watch there and thought I was already out of time. That was a close call. Uh, one of the things we want to do today is we want to understand what was Paul saying to the Jews and what was Paul saying about the Jews. It's very easy at that point to just go, So what? That's the Jews. That's not me, right? Well, once we've interpreted the passage, then I want to go back and kind of think, well, what does that got to do with you and I? Okay, so just kind of hang in there because it's very easy when we're reading uh, this passage and passages like this to kind of say, well, he's talking about somebody else there and it doesn't apply to me. Okay, well, uh, another thing we want to keep in mind is that these verses that we're looking at today, verses 17 through 24, fit within the context of a lengthy argument that Paul is making. Began in chapter 1, verse 18, and will continue up through chapter 3, verse 20. What is that argument? All All of sin. All of sin fallen short of the glory of God, and all are under his wrath. Okay, That's the point that he's making. But it's a very lengthy argument. Now, the, the problem that we have when we encounter in Scripture, when we encounter lengthy arguments that go on for a chapter or two, and this may be, as far as I know, one of the longest arguments, per se, in Scripture. <clears throat> when you encounter lengthy arguments like that, and you get kind of down into the nitty gritty and you start looking at sub passages within that argument or sub arguments within that argument what what what's the tendency what is our tendency we forget the original
1: argument
0: okay we forget the big picture right and so we get focused and we try to interpret the sub passage all by itself as if it just kind of as if it's an argument in and of itself and, and, and we lose sight of the bigger picture. Well, we don't want to do that. Okay, We, we want to understand each part of this lengthy argument in the context of Paul's, Paul's whole argument. Okay, So he's, uh, as, as I said a number of times, and already earlier today I said, Paul is in the process of reeling us in, if you will, or drawing us in by a net. Pulling us in until we all realize that we stand in this desperate, desperate condition of all being sinners under the wrath of God. This is where He's bringing us. And, and He's tightening the noose around us, or tightening the net, I should say, around us until none of us are free. We're all just kind of packing. You know, you've seen a uh, you've seen, you know, videos and movies or whatever. You know, the guys out there fishing on the ocean, and they throw out that net, and when they pull that net up, all those fish are in that net, and they're just squirming, and but they're all packed in there, tight together. That's where we're going to be by the time we get to Romans chapter three, verse twenty. Is we're going to realize we're all caught in that net, and we're crammed in there with every other sinner and every other person on the face of the earth. Okay, that's where we're going. But Paul's got this subset who even though they've read everything and heard everything he said in chapter 1 and everything he said so far in chapter 2 about the moralists, they're still standing there and saying, well, that may be true about those really bad Gentile people and it may even be true about the moralists, but it's not true about us and it's not true about me. And there's two reasons. Because I'm in that special subset. I'm in that special group of people to whom God has given His law. And I am in that special group of people to whom God has entered into covenant and signified that covenant with circumcision. And because I have the law and because I have circumcision, I'm in scot-free and yeah, I may sin a little bit I may fall short a little bit but but I have these promises of God and I have the word of God and I have the covenant of God and I have circumcision and so uh, and so uh, you know my standing with God is okay. And Paul begins here in chapter 2, verse 17, to demolish the two foundations, the two legs, if you will, upon which this argument stands. And in verses 17 through 24, the argument is, I have the law. I have the law of Moses. And because I have the law of Moses, I stand in a special position with God. Then picking up in verse 25 and down through verse 29, Paul demolishes the second foundation, and the second foundation is what? Circumcision, okay? The sign of the covenant. So he's gonna he's gonna demolish these two things because to the Jew, these were the two biggies. Okay? So we're gonna to try to understand that today, and then we're gonna to try to apply it to us. Gentiles living in the 21st century. Okay? Maybe a trick, but we're going to do it. Okay? Alright. So, picking up then, in chapter 2, in verse 17, he says But if you bear the name Jew, and rely upon the law, and boast in God, and know his will, and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector, of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. Okay? Well, seems fairly pretty straightforward, but let's kind of explore this and see what Paul is saying. First of all, keep in mind, Paul is a Jew very easy for us to read this passage and get kind of an anti-Semitic tone out of it, right? But that would be a serious mistake. That would be a serious misunderstanding. Paul is writing here as a Jew. And, and Paul is not writing as a Jew who has become so disillusioned with Judaism that he's just thrown the whole thing out and despises it all. And has contempt for the Jews. You know, that's, that's not where Paul is coming from. How do I know that? Because when we get to chapter 9, 10, and 11, Paul is going to make it very clear how deeply he loves the Jews. How deeply he cares for them. How much he wants for them to experience all that God has for them as Jews. Okay. So this is a guy, he's not a Gentile writing about Jews. He's not somebody writing from the outside. He's writing from the inside, if you will. And he's not even a Jew who has become so disillusioned he kind of wishes he wasn't one. But he's writing as a Jew who, who recognizes and acknowledges what a great privilege it is for him, Saul of Tarsus, to have been born a Jew, to have been raised a Jew, to be a Jew, and to be a part of this covenant group, covenant body of God's people. Okay, so so this is who's writing this stuff, and we need to keep that in mind. And it's very easy for us because we understand where Paul is going with his argument here. We know where he's going. He's gonna he's trying to get paint you know everybody in this very dark picture of being sinners under the wrath of God. So we know that's where he's going. So it's very easy for us to mistakenly here in verses seventeen. Through 20, to read negative implications into these things Paul is saying. And that would be a mistake. Because everything that Paul lists here in verses 17 through 21 or 20 is a positive thing. First, he gives us in verses 17 and 18, he gives us five privileges that are are inherent in just being a Jew and these are all five positive things then he goes on and he gives us in verses 19 and 20 he gives us four prerogatives four great prerogatives that the Jew has because he's a Jew and and these again are four very positive things that God has given to the Jews in His grace and in His love and in His goodness. He's given these to the Jews. And all of these nine things, the five privileges and the four prerogatives are all directly a product of the fact that God has given to the Jews the law of Moses. Because they have the law of Moses, they have these privileges okay well so he begins in verse 17 and he says if you bear the name Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law and the first thing he says is he's now remember he's in this diatribe what we call the diatribe okay what's a diatribe it's not me ranting remember it's (laughs) <laughs> a
1: diatribe
0: the five tribes, isn't it? no <laughs> two tribes instead of five no right. uh, what's a diatribe and dialogue. okay it's a dialogue that somebody has with kind of an imaginary opponent okay so paul has set up this kind of imaginary opponent and he's carrying on this dialogue so so what he's doing is he's taking these Objections and questions and arguments that he has undoubtedly heard in his 20 or so years of ministering the gospel all over the Mediterranean world. And as he's writing Romans, he's kind of throwing those arguments back at himself. Like he's got this, this imaginary opponent over here and he's carrying on this diatribe. He's carrying on this dialogue with this imaginary opponent opponent. Now at this you know, and, and, uh, and in earlier in chapter two his imaginary opponent was just kind of the moralist generally speaking okay But now very specifically it's the Jew. His imaginary opponent over here is the Jew who is a moralist, but he's more than a moralist. He's a Jewish moralist, okay? And so this is the guy he's talking about and he starts by addressing him here in chapter seven, uh, verse 17 very directly, he says, if you bear the name Jew. Now this is the privilege of all privileges. This is a this is really especially now this name Jew, where does it come from? You know, why do we call the Jews Jews? You know, why don't we still call them the sons of Israel or the descendants of Abraham? Why do we call them Jews? Well, the the name Jew originally was a term that referred to specifically the tribe of Judah. Okay? But as you move forward in Jewish history and you get to the point of time of the exile towards the end of the Old Testament uh, chronology, you get to the time of the exile and then particularly following the exile, this name Jew begins to refer to all the all the children of Israel. Okay. So for example. You remember in the story of Esther. When we are still out in the exile. Remember. We're still out in the exile. You have the story of Esther. And in the story of Esther. They keep talking about the Jews. Right. So, so it's at about this time. That the term Jew. Comes to be a reference to. The children of Israel. And it referred to not only the children of Israel who were living in Palestine, but it referred to all the children of Israel all over the world, as we see in the story of Esther. Okay? So the term Jew is a term that's a reference to the children of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, who entered into a covenant with God at Sinai. Okay? That's who it's a reference to. And it was a tremendous privilege just to be a Jew. Now, that may offend our American uh, sensibilities, our Western sensibilities, but in reality, it's just the simple truth. They were a blessed people. They were the people whom God, by His grace, chose to be the vehicle and the vessel through whom He would display, display His glory to the nations. And so He poured His grace upon this special group of people the descendants of Abraham because of Abraham's faith in response to Abraham's faith. And God entered into a a covenant with Abraham, a covenant that he then went on and extended and extrapolated out and ultimately then entered into a covenant with the entire people of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai. And so if you were a Jew, you had very special privileges. And there's nothing to be sneezed at. So he says, if you bear the name Jew, if you're in this special group of people whom God has selected out from all the nations of the world, God has selected you out and said, I'm going to do some special stuff with you. Okay? Not because you're so special, but just because this is what I want to do and you're the one I've chosen to do it through. Okay? so <clears throat> So it's a great privilege to be a Jew. And if you bear the name Jew, he says, and rely upon the law. Now, here again, it's very easy for us to read something negative into that expression, rely upon the law, because we're anticipating Paul's argument, right? <laughs> that Paul's argument is going to be the law isn't going to save you. And so we look at that and we think, oh, well, that's, that's where they go wrong. They rely on the law. But everything else in Paul's list here in these four verses is positive. So why would reliance upon the law be a negative? So I would suggest to you it's not. That Paul means here, when he says you rely upon the law, he means it in a positive sense. The Jews had confidence in this book. They relied upon it. They believed it was true. They believed when they opened the Pentateuch and they read the the writings of Moses or the writings of the prophets, they believed they had confidence in this was God's revelation to them. They relied upon the law. And he said, you know God. Now that in itself is a pretty remarkable thing. I mean, when we think of all the nations of the world and many, 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 many nations at this time had far more people in than, them than, than the nation of Israel. But this one nation knew God. They knew the true God. They knew the living God. They had heard his voice at Sinai. They had heard him speak. His presence, his very presence, went with them through the wilderness, in the smoke, and in the flame. This is stunning stuff, folks. The God. All the other nations are out there and they're making idols and cutting trees down and carving them up into strange-looking things and bowing down and worshiping. All the other nations are doing it. But this one little tiny group of, a, of, of just a few million people that's stuck there at the east end of the Mediterranean, for some reason, they know the true and living God, the Creator of heaven and earth. You know God. You know His will. Now most of us, as pagan Gentiles, we're just kind of wandering around, going, "Okay, is this right or is this wrong?" Or you know, and and we're having to rely on that law of God written on our heart, right? But it's by now, you know, it's gotten pretty corrupted, right? We've messed it up pretty bad, and so this compass doesn't work really well for us, and so we're we're walking around in this kind of ambiguity of going, "I don't know," you know, "Is this right or this," you know, I, "But the Jew, he has not had that problem." He knows the will of God. The will of God is just laid out for him in black and white. So much so that it's only there, but he now has the facility, he has the capability to judge and approve the things that are essential. So, so he's able to look at all of his options and consider all of his options and he's able to say, now this is important and this isn't important. I know this is important and I know this isn't important and I approve this. I like this over here because this is important. Because this is the will of God. This is what's important to God. And how do I know it? He says, because I am instructed out of the law. The law of Moses has made all this possible. I have this tremendous advantage as a Jew because I am instructed out of the law. Now, just as a side note, I want to throw this in. I'm not going to expound on it here. But I want to make a mental note of it in your mind because later in Romans we're going to come back to this. Paul, as we know from the overall argument, Paul is writing to people who are dead in their sins. Right? That's his argument. He's writing to people who are dead in their sins and to these people who are dead in their sins he says you approve the things that are excellent I just mentioned that because later on in Romans we're going to start to contemplate what does it mean to be dead in sin one of the things we have to understand is that the person who is dead in his sin can approve the things that are excellent that's his argument okay okay that's just a side note because we'll come back to that when we get later on into chapter 7 etc okay so uh then he's given us these five privileges and these five privileges are because we have the Jew has been instructed out of the law and then he goes on and he gives us these four prerogatives now so here you are you got all this great stuff you know god you know his will you 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 know what's important, you know what's right and wrong, you know what's essential, you prove the things are essential, you're a Jew, you're covenant people. You you know, really got these great privileges. Now here's what you can do with all that. Here's your here's your here's your prerogatives. These are prerogatives that you have as a Jew that nobody else has. So he says in verse 19, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, and a teacher of the immature. So what he's saying is because of all this stuff that God just dumped on you, here you are, this little tiny nation among all the nations of the world, and you are a guide to the Gentiles. Now, all these Gentiles out here and they're all kind of wandering around going, oh, yeah, I don't know. And you're their guide. You can take them by the hand and you can lead them to God. You are a light to those who are in darkness. This is not presumption on the part of the Jews. This is what God said. Over and over again, he says, you are a light to the nations. That was his intent. That was God's purpose. That's why he dumped all this stuff on him. Because he intended from out of that little tiny group of people in that little corner of the world, he intended the light of his glory to shine throughout to all the people who lived in darkness. Even Mary in her Magnificat talks about that. Remember? Oh, God, look, God, what you're doing and you're shining
1: your light out. You know,
0: this is cool stuff, right? You are a corrector of the foolish and a teacher of the immature because why? What makes them able to do that? End of verse 20. the law because they have right there right there folks the embodiment of knowledge and truth they have in tangible written form on parchment that they can go touch and read the embodiment of knowledge and truth what other nation has this all the other nations are walking around trying to figure out you know figure out everything by their conscience by that law written in their hearts that's become so obscure to them because of their sin and, and their cultures and everything else has made it all so and so the Gentiles are all kind of walking around in a daze and in the darkness, and here come these people who have on a piece of parchment the embodiment of knowledge and truth. But when he introduces those four prerogatives, he does it with an interesting term. He says, you are confident that you yourself are. He says, you think of yourself as being a light to the nations, a guide to the Gentiles, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature. But in reality, is that what's happening? And so he moves on then in verse 20 and he points out to us the problem. So we've had the five great blessings, privileges, we've had the four tremendous prerogatives of the Jews, but now we come confront the big problem. And the big problem in verse 20 is you, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? And so here, up to this point, you know, we talk about Paul reeling us in or Paul pulling in the net, you know, he's really reeling these Jews in because for these first four verses they're going, Yeah,
1: yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah.
0: And when he's got them completely with him, I've got all these privileges and I've got all these prerogatives, and so I am special with God. And I don't have to sweat this wrath of God thing. I'm special and I'm
1: you know, I'm with you, Paul.
0: And then Paul says, uh, yeah,
1: you yeah, not teach yourself? You have
0: all this stuff. You've got the law. You've got all of this tremendous stuff. And you're in a place to be able to teach others. But wait a minute. Haven't you, have you not been teaching yourself? You who preach, you shall not steal. Do you steal? You who say you shall not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you, by your breaking of the law, dishonor God in whom you boast? See, the Jews got a problem. Jude's got the same problem you got, and he's got the same problem I've got. Is he knows all this stuff, but he's still not doing it? Now, now Paul's list here is not exhaustive. <laughs> he picks two or three things out of the Ten Commandments at random: stealing, adultery, idolatry. And he just kind of picks those three. Because he knows that if he picks those three and just kind of throws them out there, he's going to get everybody on at least one of them. So he says, you teach others they should not steal. Do you steal? You say it's not right to steal. Do you put corners on your income tax? You say it's not right to steal. You shouldn't steal. Do you pilfer paper and paper clips from your employer? Or cheat on your time card? You say you should not steal when you walk out of Walmart with that extra change in your pocket. Do you not go back and return it to its rightful owner? You see, Pretty soon, when we start saying, I'm going to live by the law, we find out how hard that is. And the problem is, it's not just those outward things But Jesus said, it's even on the inner things of the heart. He says, if you look on a woman who lusts after you've committed adultery with her in your heart. And God looks, not on the outward appearance, but on the heart. And so, what we begin to find out is, we say, well, yeah, you shouldn't commit adultery. And not tell everybody, you don't, you, know, you don't do that. But in your heart, in your thoughts, in the things that you look at on television or in magazines or on the computer, are we committing adultery when we tell others they should not commit adultery? Or he says, you abhor idols, but you rob temples. Now... Commentators are a little bit confused by this statement. I'm uh, not exactly sure where Paul's going with it. But I think probably the best way to understand, uh, there, there are several possibilities of how the passage, uh, that line could be understood. But probably, uh, even though there's not a lot of uh, external historical record to say there was a lot of this going on, apparently what he's referring to is the people that some Jews were actually, and it could have been zealots in their uh in their efforts to stamp out uh, idolatry in whatever form they sought it uh, would go into temples and rob temples and take the gold that was dedicated to these pagan temples and take it and appropriate to themselves now the problem with that is that it's strictly prohibited in the law of Moses he says you got these you got these idols out there and stuff you can't You can't take those idols and melt down that gold and use it for yourself. You can't go in and and take these offerings that are made to these foreign gods and take that gold and use it for yourself. That's all been dedicated to a pagan god, and you can't touch it. It's profane. So, whatever was going on there, it's clear that they abhorred, and the Jews of this day did abhor idolatry. After the Jews came back from captivity, idolatry was absolutely verboten. It was absolutely prohibited in Israel because it's what had taken them into captivity. So the one thing they learned in captivity is you don't worship idols. So when they came back, idolatry was gone. They didn't practice. They abhorred idolatry. But apparently they weren't beyond finding some way to benefit from it. And so we have these people who are so privileged and have this great opportunity to be a guide to the Gentiles and a light to those that live in darkness and a corrector of the foolish and a teacher. of A tremendous opportunity to be such a force for God but those who would teach others have not taught themselves. And Paul says, if you're going to live by the law, you're going to die by the law. And what we end up with is a situation where the Jews now are a source of blasphemy to the very God that they would honor. They are a source of blasphemy to this God whom they know and whose will they know. This God in whom they boast their very conduct dishonors him. So, are you really sure, Jew, that you want to say, I'm okay with God because I've got the law? Well, as I said, Paul is tightening the He's He's squeezing us down. And pretty soon, all of us are going to be to change my metaphor caught in that net like one of those fish that we see in the videos and movies you know we're going to be flopping around and trying to get out of the net but we're going to be caught crammed in that net with all the rest of humankind we are sinners through and through and through and we are under the wrath of God and the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against my ungodliness And my unrighteousness. And I am in a desperate position. Well, but that's the Jew, right? That's just the Jew. Does this have any application to us today? Yeah, I just, I just, I am struck by how we who live here in America in the 21st century are so remarkably privileged and blessed we live we live in a country where there is probably more religious freedom than in any other place in the world. I don't want to pretend that it's unlimited religious freedom and there are threats to it, of course. But we have a remarkable level of religious freedom here in America. And we have so many of these things, we can't even count them all. You know how many Bibles I have in this room? You look at this you think i got one? No, I don't have one. I've got... Five Bibles in a Greek translation in this room. You know, four of them here on my phone. You know. <laughs> you know, we got Bibles out the wazoo. We've got them in every conceivable translation. We've got the New Testament in Greek. We've got multiple Greek translations of the New Testament. You know, which one do you want? What's gotten Hort? You know, you which which one do you want? The Greek. You know, we got the Hebrew. You know. We've got, can you read Arabic? We've got it in Arabic, you know. We've got the Bible everywhere. Most of you got Bibles in your homes, even though presumably you read your Bible fairly regularly. You've got Bibles in your home that have been collecting dust for years, right? I do. Multiple translations of the Bible in my home that have been collecting dust for years because now I read it all on the computer. <laughs> yeah. We've got so many Bibles. We have the law of God. And we have untold resources for understanding the law, the Word of God, right? Now, some of you are not as maybe fanatical Bible students as some of the rest of us, you know, but... But we all have these resources available to us. And I remember with the advent of the personal computer, you know, just what a, you know, what a door it opened up for us as far as the, the resources, commentaries and, and at Bible atlases. We, we have tremendous blessing of being able to know the will of God and being able to judge and approve the things that are essential. It's all right there for us. In a country where we are free to worship and practice our religion almost in an unlimited way. And we are blessed with such wealth in comparison to the rest of the world that we don't have to struggle just to survive like so many places in the rest of the world do. So we are free and have the time to do things like read our Bibles and worship with other people. And yet, even though we are so privileged, and even though we know that we should be a light to the nations, in fact, that was part of the whole mentality of the Puritans when they came to the United States. But, you know, things had gotten so corrupt in England, they thought, well, we're just going to go We're going to go over to the new world. We're going to go over to America and we're going to start a new thing over there and we are going to be a light, a city on a hill. And we're going to be a light to the nations. And that's God's intent, they thought, for them. But with all of that, have we not taught ourselves? Do we not day after day, hour after hour, fall short of the glory of God. With all of our advantages and all of our privileges, do we who say you shall not steal, do we steal? Do we who say you shall not commit adultery, do we commit adultery? Do we who say you shall... Or to those of us who abhor idols, do we not have our own litany of idols we worship? And so we come to this part of the passage of, and, and we realize that that's not only true about the Jews, but that's true about us apart from Christ, is it not? And so, when I begin to realize how far short I've fallen from the standard that I know is right, in spite of all the privileges I have as an American living in the 21st century, I have to cry out with Paul as he does at the end of Romans chapter 7 and say, Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me? from the
1: body of this death.
0: Well, it gets worse before it gets better, folks. Next week we'll do circumcision.
1: Okay? <coughs>